Hysteria is brought to you by Books. This Mother's Day, give mom her flowers. She deserves the best. That's why you should send her farm fresh flowers from Books. That's short for bouquets. And right now, you can get 25% off your entire Books purchase. Here's why everyone likes the Books company. Books is different. Their flowers are cut fresh and sourced directly from the best flower farms, so they last way longer. They even have flowers grown on the side of a volcano, which I love. Books has modern designs and unique flowers you can't find anywhere else. Books is simple. Go online, pick the delivery date, and you are done. Mother's Day is May 12th. Don't miss the chance to thank your mom. Order your books now. And with 20% off, you can send some to mom, wife, aunt, and even grandma. Erin, I love my books. I love a flower that lasts forever, and my books arrangements really do last a full solid week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have uh, I have some sitting on my kitchen table right now, mm-hmm. and they've been there for several days. And usually when I buy them at, like, the grocery store, they're sort of, like, starting to crap Fade. out pretty quickly. Yep. Not with books. They stick around. They look beautiful. I like how they kind of slowly open up and become even more beautiful as they sit on your, you know, wherever Absolutely, you Absolutely, because they're that fresh. So go to books.com and use promo code hysteria for 25% off. That's B-O-U-Q-S.com, promo code hysteria. Books, promo code hysteria. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. So Alyssa, as mask mandates all over the country are sort of falling by the wayside for reasons we're not going to really debate because we don't have time because it's a cold open of a show. Um, Do you think America is ready to see everybody's mouths again? No, 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 no. I have found it quite jarring going into stores where people have taken their masks off. It's like, oh, hey, also people recognize each other now. There is no being a ninja in and out of a store. Yeah, that's true. That was a great, great thing. Great side effect of of mask wearing is like if you saw somebody and you're like, I just not today. Not today. You you could like easily dodge them. Mm -hmm. Man, I'm not ready to see all these mouths. I gotta say, not ready. Keep it together. This week, we are joined by Ai-Jen Poo, Jill Gutowitz, and Riri Cheney to tackle the following questions. What's really behind all these bills targeting teachers and schools? How do we keep pushing for domestic workers' rights given recent setbacks? How have our favorite queer female characters impacted us? And who has the energy to cook anymore? All this and more right now. We're going to do something a little different this week when we talk about news. Um, and that's because a lot of what we're going to talk about has been talked about really well on other Crooked Media podcasts. Like I just guest hosted Podsave mm-hmm. on Tuesday of this week. And Tommy and I got to talk about Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill and what they're doing in Texas. Um, but one thing that I think is a common thread between a lot of the really naughty laws we're seeing now is that they target teachers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they they force teachers to do things that that teachers, that's not why they got into the profession. And they penalize teachers for not snitching on their students or outing them to their parents. And so I kind of wanted to get into all the ways that Republicans are now targeting public educators 
um, and and what that means. So uh, we've got some good data here from Penn America. Uh, since January 2021, 122 educational gag order bills have been introduced or pre-filed in 33 different states. So fucked up. It's so fucked up. Uh, 12 have become law in 10 states and 88 are currently live. What is, what's going on? Um, well, Aaron, they, I think that all these sort of crazy fringe groups, you know, look at all, a lot of it goes back to Donald Trump, giving these people the room to think that people can stop progress from happening by putting cameras in classrooms and keeping teachers from teaching Mm -hmm. the current state of affairs, Mm -hmm. you know? And they're like, oh no, they have, they have made subjects taboo and, and vilified the teachers who are teaching curriculums that have otherwise been non-controversial for years because they think that it's going to help the pendulum swing back in their direction and create more little MAGA babies. I don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. Here's, and my my view of it is a little bit more paranoid, as okay. my view on many things is paranoid. I have, uh, you know, I'm sitting here like collecting my fingernails here, but <laughs> my my view on it is it's, it's a little bit more insidious than that. I think that conservative groups are targeting educators, like forcing them to have um, uh, cameras in classrooms, right. like you mentioned forbidding them from speaking about LGBTQ issues as they're yep. doing in Florida, uh, forcing them to out students to their parents as they're doing in Florida, um, penalizing, uh, making teachers mandatory reporters for parents who are uh, providing any sort of medical care at all, gender-affirming mm-hmm. care for trans kids in Texas. But there's other states too. I think what they're doing. And oh, and, and in Florida, they're also like trying to sell, like we're preventing critical race theory being taught. Right. We're just increasing the, you know, we're, we're making it so that the the curriculum is accessible. So, so nobody is hiding the curriculum, which never was happening in the first place. I think what they're doing, these conservative groups are selling to extremely media illiterate people. Yeah, totally. That, that the way that students become... Uh, radicalized is in schools. When that mm-hmm. we know that that's not the case, students are becoming radicalized and they're accessing information through the internet. That right. horse has left the barn. <laughs> that horse has left the barn. Left the barn in like 1999. You know, like there is the information that students want to get, they will get. Um, so they're selling to these conservative old people you know, crazy school board meeting, low media literacy people, that this is what, that that people are being radicalized in schools. But meanwhile, I think the end game for these groups is privatizing public education. I think what they're trying to do is hobble teachers, make teaching so undesirable a profession that more and more people leave it, That's that public schools become less and less desirable, and that we eventually end up with uh, privatized public schools. And and I think, I really think that's what's going on. In the meantime, all of these like vindictive, spiteful, awful, small-minded, Helen Lovejoy style people think they're like helping, you know, in the culture wars. The culture wars, that that's done. That's it's done. done. These kids have already figured it out and they will figure it out without your help. Um, I, I just, I, th- I think they want to take public education away. That's my theory. Well, and it, you're correct because on, almost exclusively in all these bills, and of course it's, it's 
private comp- a lot of private companies are targeted and public schools. And in some states, they're even targeting like public colleges. You know, like when you look at some of this, the through line feels like it's kindergarten, it's younger kids, it's high school. But there are some states that are trying to sort of like censor what college professors at public universities can teach. The other thing that all these groups are doing, which we saw with the abortion laws in Texas, is suing people. So, like, your point is entirely correct about just trying to drive people out of the profession, driving teachers out of teaching. Because in Florida, parents can sue schools under that bill if they think that the lessons that they are, that kids are being taught are inappropriate. And there are similar laws in, like, Tennessee, Oklahoma, and Kansas. So it's like how much... Being a teacher is not a profession that you go into to get rich, that you go into for a lot of glory. It's like you go into it because you believe and you want to teach young people. And I mean, it's like, how much are you going to put yourself on the front lines of all of these sort of things coming at you? Like, where's the upside at some point? So I think you're right that that's, they're just trying to drive people out. Yeah. I mean, and another thing is a lot of the people that are empowered to file lawsuits have no fucking business That's, filing they lawsuits. They have no standing. It's like, it's exactly right. People who don't live in the district, people who don't have children in the district are empowered to sue schools for carrying materials that run contrary to these laws, uh, for discussing things in classrooms that uh, they've denoted as like controversial. It's the Texas abortion law, like the busybody Karen Act, but like applied to public schools. And that's something that I'm hearing from teachers um, who have been kind of impacted by this kind of round of craziness is that a lot of the people that are the loudest, that are complaining the most, have no fucking business complaining. Right. They don't have any kids in the classroom. You know, they're, 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 they're being busybodies and they're doing foot soldier work for these organizations that actually ultimately don't really care about what's being taught in classrooms. What they care about is that private companies are not able to profit off of education as much as they want them to be able to. Um, and so that, that is, it's so, this whole thing is like so insidious and gross and, I don't trust the Supreme Court to protect teachers. Um, And I'm really, really worried about the state of public education in this country, truly. Um, And and it really, it's it's deeply upsetting. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Missouri. We don't really hear Missouri in the conversation as much when we're talking about Florida and we're talking about Texas. But Missouri has 16 bills pending, Mm -hmm. all of them introduced since the start of 2022. Um, they want to ban the 1619 project specifically. Right. A lot of conservatives really hate the 1619 project. It makes them very uncomfortable. It makes them very uncomfortable. Interesting. Snowflakes. Um, divisive concepts are banned. Certain ideas about race and sex are banned. And students must be presented with a positive picture of U.S. history. Honestly, here's another thing that I've been thinking about. Like, This could kind of be summarized as the all children left behind act, because when these kids go to college and they're confronted with the fact that America was built on stolen land and stolen labor, they're going to look like real fucking dumbasses. They're going to be like, wait, what? What? That's not what I that's not what I learned. And also in Missouri, something that I found particularly offensive on behalf of teachers is that parents or members of the public, there's a bill where parents or members of the public 
should be able to go in and watch teachers while they take, so like animals in a zoo, watch teachers while they take professional development courses. Could you imagine like just some backbenchers, backbenchers watching you just take a professional development course? Are you fucking kidding me? First of all, the kind of insanity that you would have to have to willingly watch someone else's workforce development courses, like that was, oh man, my teachers aren't, they're not exciting. They're- the workforce development, they ask a teacher, it is not exciting. <laughs> all you have to do is watch Abbott Elementary and their professional development episode and you, that is the truth, Erin. It is, it is right there on, on this big screen. Right. It's it's not that exciting. But if you're the type of person who is so bound and determined to fuck with teachers that you're willing to sit through that, you are really made of stuff that I do not want in the water. Um, it's it's really deeply, deeply weird. And it again, like relies on these people who have just totally bought into the conservative mindset that public education is out here indoctrinating kids and turning them gay, um, which is is just crazy because, t- we, I mean, like, we, TV's turning the kids gay, you know? <laughs> Euphoria is turning the kids gay. To your point, again, Erin, your point at the top just, like, keeps keeps being proven over and over because in Indiana, Indiana was the one I think that tells on itself the most. Because Mm -hmm. they get to the heart of the matter where they're like, oh, their bill, I think it's HB 1040, bans teaching socialism (laughs) or similar, quote unquote, similar political systems that aren't compatible with principles of the U.S. It's like, what are you talking about? Which, you know, if like Republicans just hadn't like made every ad in 2020 about (laughs) about socialism and 2022 about socialism, which doesn't exist and isn't happening. Like, yeah. it's it's socialism and critical race theory are their two faves in these bills. Yeah. Also, CRT, just to remind people, is a law school level course. Right. It is not your, your fucking Br- Braden and Kinsley are not learning critical race theory in second grade. Here's another thing that's kind of like a big picture thing is I was reading about North Dakota. North Dakota banned critical race theory and also is requiring all instruction be factual and objective, which is funny because- Air quotes. The the, the implication here is that objectivity is is the perspective of being like a a white man in power um, because like- why Why is that the objective viewpoint and not like the viewpoint of a person of color, a queer person, whatever. Anyway, you know, something I, that I was thinking about is, is these are the same people that think that teachers are babysitters. Yeah. Like you can, I think with a babysitter, when you have somebody coming over to your house and providing childcare, you can say, this is the schedule of naps that, you know, we're following. This is what I'm feeding my children. Um, and these are some books that I have purchased that you you sh- you can read to my kid. You have like, contr- like it's a baby. It's pr- a person providing childcare. Someone providing public education is not somebody who you, you don't get a say over what public education is. As a parent, you do as you get to elect a school board. Right. But like, exactly. You don't get you don't get to tell the teachers how to do their job because they don't work for you. They are providing education to children to make them better citizens, which doesn't necessarily mean they're doing what you want to do at home. And that's, I think, a hard thing for parents to come to terms with, especially if they just think that teachers are glorified 
right. daycare workers or right. just looking there to look after the kids. And, you know, again, like we're we're talking to Aijin Poo in the show and like looking after children, providing childcare is super, super important. And it's a highly skilled job, but it's not the same as what teachers in public schools do, you know? And right, like, of course. And, and, and it's just, it, I just find it all, it's just a real salad of, of, crap because it's disrespectful to a majority female profession, deeply disrespectful to a majority female profession. It's disrespectful to students. It is disrespectful to the people that they're trying to exploit into enforcing their agenda because it treats them like true idiots. Like you truly have to be an idiot to think that what you're doing is fighting the culture war because what you're doing is furthering an agenda. Right. And it's it's not until we talked about it in the way that we did today, I think, that even when I was doing the research, that it's this is not isolated. This is happening in so many places that it's not, it's not something that people can ignore because it's gonna, these things are gonna start popping up in places where you don't even expect to see them, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and here's another thing that I find very insidious about all of this. Like, there's a bill in Iowa that would require classrooms are be filmed. There's cameras in every public school classroom except for phi ed and special ed classes, and the cameras would feed live streams that could be viewed on the internet by parents, guardians, and others. Really, like, you want to live stream the kids onto the internet? Great, great call. Way to go! That sounds like. That sounds like something Chuck Grassley came up with. Chuck Grassley and a bunch of, like, ancient evil ent people. Chuck Grassley came up with it, and I promise you, Olivia Benson opposes it. Exactly. (laughs) I'm hearing the law and order dunk-dunk in my head. Dunk-dunk. But here's here's the thing. Like, they're— they're selling these laws like, well, teachers need to be, you know, safe, blah, 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 blah. And it's absolutely true that in some cases, it would be helpful for teachers to have access to cameras in their classroom in the in the case of fights, for yep, example. totally. Like, I know that in my sister's school that there are fights a lot and it's, it's a safety issue. Mm-hmm. But the way that this is actually written and the way that it could be enacted is just like deeply— it's for snitching. It's, yeah, for, it's for snitching. snitching. It's not it's for, snitching. for safekeeping. It is for snitching and streaming. It's so weird. Like, I mean, look, this is the real Pizzagate, man. You're you're going to live stream a bunch of second graders to anybody on the internet? God. Look, when I grew up in Wisconsin, I had relatives in Iowa. My dad's brother lived in Iowa and my cousins lived there. So we would we went to Iowa a lot. A lot. So I have very fond memories of central Iowa. Um, but my dad would tease my uncle by saying Iowa stands for I owe the world an apology. And I think <laughs> in this case, I think in this case, it does. It's quite clever. Yeah. Or idiots out wandering around, which really, <laughs> really made my uncle angry. Look, we we know that there are great Iowans. We know that there's like a lot of hope for the state of Iowa, for the state of Indiana, for the state of Missouri, Texas and Florida even, have people down there working as hard as they can to make sure that this shit doesn't happen. Um, and and they're they're doing the Lord's work. But right now it's it's gross. What is what is happening, what the people in power are actually doing is is deeply, deeply gross. And I don't know, Alyssa, are teachers a group to be fucked with? I wouldn't fuck with teachers. I would say no. Because you know what I'm going to just say? Didn't we all get here because of our teachers? Yeah. Like, why would I want to fuck with the people who got me here? Like, seems kind of 
illogical. Some would say stupid. Yeah. Maybe dangerous. Yeah. As a, I'm a product of a public K through 12 education. My brother and sister are products of K through 12 public educations. Lots of great products of public educations. And for this country to move in a direction where we are endangering that opportunity for other kids, deeply fucked up. I do not approve. And we will not, we will not be shutting up about this. No, we will not. Okay, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, my interview with Aizhen Pu. And welcome back. Today, we're so pleased to finally welcome Aizhen Pu to Hysteria. Aizhen is the co-founder and executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, a nonprofit organization working to bring quality work, dignity, and fairness to the growing numbers of workers who care for and clean in our homes, the majority of whom are immigrants and women of color. Welcome, Aizhen Pu. Thank you for having me, Erin. We're so glad you're here. We've you've been on our hysteria dream guest list forever. No way. That's yeah. so exciting. I love your show. Oh, thank you so much. Well, we love you back. Um, so let's get this started. Okay. Conversations about the care agenda the past couple of years have been elevated to the national level and become, for whatever reason, a controversial part of the infrastructure conversation. So this didn't happen overnight. How many years of work did it take for this issue to become a national conversation? And can you tell us a little bit about the people who came before you? I think probably if you ask Gloria Steinem, she would tell you that this work has been happening for generations. Um, I know for me, I've been a part of about 25 years of organizing on behalf of mostly women of color who work in the care economy as professionals, um, as nannies, as childcare workers, as home care workers, um, and supporting our families with the care that they need across generations and really struggling to survive doing that work. Um, the care workforce is overwhelmingly women, majority women of color, and earn poverty wages and don't have access to paid sick days and paid time off. And these workers have been organizing for decades to try to lift up the dignity and the essential nature of this work. And I think in COVID, more and more of us finally realize just how essential care is to our economy and our society functioning. And we are on the verge, I think, of a really big breakthrough in how this country values care, thanks to a ton of organizing on the part of women um, and not just care workers, but family caregivers, moms, um, all kinds of people with disabilities, older people who've been fighting for the services and supports that they need in order to live whole, dignified lives. All of this advocacy and organizing has kind of come together and converged in this moment. And it's really exciting to see, Erin. Mm -hmm. Well, we're in uh, Women's History Month. So in that spirit, who are some organizers from the past that our listeners might not know about, but that whose work you're building on? Like, who should we know? who was like a oh, care organizer. I love this question. There is a woman named Dorothy Lee Bolden. 
from Atlanta, Georgia, and she was a Black domestic worker um, in the South organizing. She actually was a neighbor of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And in the height of the civil rights movement, she walked down the street and knocked on his door and said, domestic workers want to be a part of this movement. And, um, And he said, well, great. I need you to organize domestic workers. And she founded the National Domestic Workers Union, um, which ended up organizing more than 10,000 domestic workers throughout the South and was a critical part of gaining some protections in our federal labor laws for domestic workers um, that we were then able to build upon um, in the work that I've been doing for the last 20 years or so. Well, that's that's great. Um, so in that spirit, uh, what priorities should public officials have today when it comes to the care economy? Like it was a part of Build Back Better. Build Back Better is now kind of on the rocks. How would you like to see the conversation move forward? Well, I would say first that um, we still have a huge opportunity in the Senate to get components of the care agenda in Build Back Better across the finish line. Um, So it is not over. In fact, we are in the middle of ramping back up our organizing and advocacy for childcare and home and community-based services and paid leave, including um, improving the wages and working conditions of the workers who work in the care economy, either in our childcare system or in our home care system. And I think we have kind of a six to eight week time horizon where there will be a window where we could get this done and it would be a game changer. And for those of you who don't know what we mean when we say care economy, we mean the programs and policies that support our families to care for the people that we love so that we can go to work every day. And it includes childcare, making childcare more affordable and accessible. It includes paid family and medical leave. So if you need to take time off to take care of a loved one or spend time with a newborn, You don't have to worry about leaving your job permanently or losing that income. And then home and community-based services for older people and people with disabilities makes it possible for our loved ones to be able to stay at home and in the community with the support of home care workers and other resources so that they don't have to be in nursing homes and separated from their families. Um, So it's a a big program that's kind of about how we support families in the 21st century in this country and really long overdue. We are so far behind other countries on this. And with this agenda, the president's agenda, we can actually make a hugely forward into the future. Mm -hmm. So there have already been 10 states and two major cities to have passed uh, legislation that's sort of along the lines of the National Domestic Workers Bill of Rights. Um, How and why was it successful on the state and local level? And how do we make that successful either on the federal level or in more states and localities? Well, we definitely need to do both. Um, And, you know, the secret ingredients is just great organizing, (laughs) good old-fashioned organizing, where women have come together and built coalitions in states and in cities around the country to really recognize and protect domestic work, including nannies, house cleaners, and home care workers who are almost by definition, invisible and isolated and really vulnerable to abuse um, and have faced a really long history of exclusion from labor laws and 
protections dating all the way back to the New Deal, mm-hmm. um, when Southern members of Congress um, didn't want Black workers to have equal protections under the laws. Um, so farm workers and domestic workers were explicitly excluded, and that kind of set a tone for how this workforce would be treated as kind of second class. And so we've been organizing, and literally, um, you know, domestic workers, thousands going to state capitals and city halls and sharing their stories and organizing and pushing, building coalitions with um, faith-based communities and unions and women's groups. And it's been really exciting to see the movement grow around the country. And we now have a federal domestic workers bill of rights that Congresswoman Jayapal and Senator Gillibrand have introduced. And uh, we're really excited to get that through because there's so many states, especially in the South, um, where it's so hard to get labor pro-worker policies passed. And those workers Mm -hmm. are some of the most vulnerable and undervalued in the country. So we want to make sure that everyone has basic protections. Mm -hmm. So another way that uh, the NDWA is crucial in the work that you do is that you work with Hollywood to uh, engage in telling stories of domestic workers um, so that maybe people to whom their stories are invisible can can kind of get a sense of who these people are and, and what kind of work they do. Why is the language we use about domestic workers and stories we tell about domestic workers so important? And what are some examples of like triumphant and important depictions of this work on screen? It's such a good question. Um, I think, you know, early on we realized that even if we pass a whole bunch of laws to protect the rights of domestic workers, so much comes down to the way that we think and feel about this work and the people who do it. And until we shift that, um, until we change kind of dominant cultural narratives about this work being unskilled or help as opposed to the profession it is for millions of women and women of color, Until we really change that, it will be hard to change how people treat domestic workers in the workplace every day. And so so that's how changing culture and changing narrative really kind of became a priority of our movement. And who better to shape um, and reshape narratives than our country's best storytellers um, who are telling stories that move our hearts every single day in the entertainment industry. Um, And we've been really proud to work along Alongside people like Alfonso Cuaron, who created the film Roma, um, mm-hmm. that just just a stunning, beautiful story that had an indigenous domestic worker as the main protagonist. And you know, just for those of you who've seen that film, thinking about seeing a domestic worker as the center of the story, as a protagonist, not as kind of someone in the background doing things that supports everything else, but um, somebody who has dreams, who falls in love, who gossips with her friend, who does sit-ups by candlelight, who Hmm. is a whole human being with um, dreams and disappointments and heartbreak is really, really important because part of how we allow for injustice to occur or exploitation um, or part of how we allow for the devaluing of someone's work to happen is by thinking of them as less than fully a professional, fully a mom, fully a human. Mm -hmm. And and that's what these stories allow us to do is see people in their 
three-dimensional, whole human selves, um, as messy and inspiring as the rest of us. And um, that is that is what's so important. And I just want to also shout out a show on Netflix called Made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and the showrunner, um, Molly Smith-Metzler, is just a genius. And um, and that show, you really see and feel viscerally the cruelty of living in poverty and how difficult it is for single moms who are doing everything in their power to take care of their kids mm-hmm. and how many obstacles they face and just how impossible, the impossible choices between food and a toy that costs a dollar at a dollar store for their kid and enough gas to get you to your job interview. I mean, these choices that are just so impossible that moms have to make every single day in our country because of our failure to really support them adequately. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a unique way that storytellers like Molly can can actually depict that that I think is so important. Mm-hmm. And I think it was based on a book by Stephanie it Land. It sure I was. A big shout out to Stephanie. Yeah, she's another dream hysteria guest. So Stephanie, if you're listening, come come on hysteria. Um, yeah, you know it's it's really interesting. I have a a kid. She's four months old, mm. and we're now at the phase where we're like interviewing or you know looking for childcare, and there are chapters and chapters in books about like how to find a great person to provide childcare. And it's like, you need somebody who is like, like you're saying, qualified. It's a profession, you know? And it's crazy to me, the bifurcation that people are able to hold, like two competing ideas in their head. On one hand, this person needs to be an educator, a caregiver, a person who can perform infant CPR, a person who has all these very specialized skills. But on the other hand, they're not a person who deserves protection. Like, how do we how do we force people to put those two thoughts against each other and and expose the hypocrisy inherent in them? Mm. Like, is there is there forcing, or is it something that people need to come to organically? I, I mean, that, I know that's a complicated question, but it's just something that's been on on my mind mm. a lot. I think it's both and. I think we have to really strengthen our laws and protections to make sure that they include and protect this work. And the isolation um, and invisibility of working inside of somebody's home in particular just makes it all the more important that you have these standards and protections in place. That is one piece of it. And I think that it's on each of us to really lift up the skills required to do this work and just how essential it is. You know, this work has been referred to as help. It has been deemed unskilled. It has been, you know, relegated to the realm of reproductive labor as opposed to productive labor. Um, Mm -hmm. And all of those narratives and mindsets reinforce the fact that this isn't work that is equal to other professions. And and it's on each of us in our day-to-day interactions to really disrupt that, I think. Um, and I, I, I think now is a moment to really do that. I mean, what 
bigger disruption to everything about the way that we live and work than COVID. And inside Mm -hmm. of that disruption, we have the opportunity, I think, to reset how we do things, how we approach things, how we value things. And I think valuing what care workers produce, the human potential of a child, the Mm -hmm. dignity of an older person, the ability of a person with a disability to live in the community and and work. These are invaluable assets that they produce for our society and our economy. And the more we start to move it into that framework, I think the easier it'll be for people to be like, well, absolutely. Mm -hmm. This work deserves benefits, protections, like everything that we would eat, all of us would expect at work should apply here too. Mm-hmm. Well, Aijen Pu of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, thank you so much for stopping by to chat with me. Really appreciate the work that you do and please come back again sometime. Thank you so much, Erin. Great to be with you. For this week's Madam Hysteria, I want to tell you about the Fox sisters, Leah, Maggie, and Kate Fox. Born in New York City in the 19th century, these sisters epitomize messy, complicated women. They were OG scammers, but also played an important role in the creation of spiritualism. They grew up in what was rumored to be a haunted house. Okay, fine. Kate and Maggie allegedly communicated with the spirits through rappings, which were really just snapping sounds. And again, allegedly developed a code to talk to the spirits who, again, allegedly told them that not only had a man been murdered in their home, but that his remains were in the basement. And they were. Well, there were someone's remains, at least. Maggie and Kate were sent by their parents to live with their eldest sister, Leah, in Rochester, which was a hotbed for reform and religious activity. Leah exploited their newfound gifts as mediums and became their Kris Jennery momager. The sisters appeared before 400 people who came to hear these spooky noises from spirits. After the performance, the sisters were even asked to be examined by a panel of skeptics. No evidence of a hoax was found. Though we do wonder, what would that evidence have actually looked like? The sisters went on to New York City where they became full-blown seance-giving mediums. By 1849, these witchy bitches were foundational to the rise of the religious movement known as spiritualism. However, the younger sisters started boozing and shit got messy. Medical doctors and Harry Houdini himself became super suspect of their gifts. The drama took a toll and the sister's relationship began to fracture. Maggie did an interview where she copped to the hoax. The quote-unquote rapping sounds were made by snapping their toes and using their knees and ankles to make the cracking sounds. Oh, also, the remains in their childhood home? Chicken bones, it turns out. Although the seances and gifts themselves were revealed to be fraudulent, the movement the Fox sisters inspired continued for almost a century. And there you have the story of the Fox sisters.
This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix zero-sugar hydration drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe mushroom coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I, mean, I just like, I, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast, no dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito, (laughs) not, not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ Bar's Ultimate Sampler Pack. That's seven IQ Bars, four IQ Mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount. Text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. And we're back. Alyssa, do you remember when we were kids? Well, you were kids before I was kids, but you remember being a kid. I'm still a kid. Of course I remember being a kid. (laughs) One of my least favorite things about kids stuff, stuff that was like aimed at us, was it was always like a gang of pals hanging out. And there was always like one girl in the gang. Like she had to embody everything. Like with Power Rangers, there were two girls. But they were like the girls. You know, they weren't like fully realized characters. Yeah, of course. And like the tokenization of the female character, I guess, is we're not totally past it, but we're kind of in a new age of tokenization, which uh, we're going to talk about today with two of my favorite people to talk with about this. First of all, we haven't seen her gorgeous face in a while, and it could not be a better sight, making her triumphant return to hysteria. Uh, And finally, when we're not talking about depressing breaking news, Right. You check out her new show she wrote on Killing It, streaming on Peacock in April. Riri Cheney, Riri. Oh, hi, guys. What's up? Now, am I mistaken or did Instagram tell me that you went and saw the Katy Perry Las Vegas show? Oh, Ooh. I sure did. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. I have a cold because of it. But <laughs> yes, 
I went to see Miss Catherine Perry this weekend, <laughs> you know, with, it can only be described as a gaggle of homosexual men, uh, 14 of us uh, stepping out, um, exclusively driving in party limos because of efficiency, <laughs> scarring little girls in tutus as we moved from space to space. And then Katy Perry, she put on a good-ass show. It was like, I don't know what I was expecting. It was fabulous. She did yell out, um, let's go Ukraine at some point, which we all, she had these, like, it's the whole theme is like a toy store and these crayon soldiers came out and my friend Gus whispered to me, she's about to say something about Ukraine. I was like, she wouldn't, she couldn't, she couldn't, she wouldn't. Um, She did, didn't let it sit and just kicked on the next track, just like kept going. And uh, that's when I thought, I'm going to need another double vodka tonic. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. There's some, you know, as celebrities, we're in a golden age of celebrities feeling empowered to speak up about politics. But just because you can doesn't mean you should. Doesn't mean you should. Doesn't mean you should. But Glad she picked it back up. Um, So glad you're here. Also, we have a very special guest panelist today. Jill Gutowitz is here. Jill is a writer, director, and author living in L.A., just like everybody else in L.A. (laughs) Her her work has been featured in The New Yorker, Time, Vanity Fair, Vulture, Elle, Glamour, Cosmopolitan, Vice, and basically any place that you would want to read things. Her work has been there. Her debut book of essays, Girls Can Kiss Now, is A, very good. Very, very good. Yeah, baby. And available now via Atria Books, her first short film and directorial debut, The Ladies, starring Lisa Ann Walter, who is having a banger of a year. Um, Jason Lewison, Alexis G. Zal, and Annie Corzon is coming soon. Jill, so glad you're here today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for such a kind intro. I feel, I'm like, wow, thank you. I'm also like the biggest Lisa Ann Walter stan. So I'm like, if you want to spend 45 minutes just talking about that, I'm I'm here. <laughs> the power of Chessie, man. Like, is, yeah. Like, speaking of queer culture, the parent trap, Chessie's like appearance in that was so important. Yes. So you really Really. Read. Jill, speak to that. You guys are agreeing on like <laughs> it, what the power of Chessie and the parent trap. What does that mean? Well, I feel like there's like a like trend happening on lesbian TikTok right now of like all of these like queer girls coming forward and being like Chessie was like a seminal like mm-hmm. queer crush in the 90s. You know, she's like you know, has this kind of, like, maternal warmth. Her outfit was perfect. I mean, outfits. She had, like, zingers. She was like, you know what I mean? I don't know. She she was awesome. That's so funny. I I feel like, as a straight woman who is on lesbian TikTok for some reason, (laughs) um, probably because it's, like, the the best corner of TikTok, I think. Yeah, it's, like, like where culture is made. Yeah, totally. Um, I'm seeing a lot of, like, kind of commiseration of queer women being like, oh, my God. I thought that too. I thought I was the only one um, that were there like kind of low key queer moments in their childhood that they didn't know that they shared with like all these other people, which is like yeah, kind of cool. Um, Jill, can you tell us a little bit about your new book? Um, yeah. <laughs> the question that's written is, can you tell our listeners who haven't read it yet? I think it came out this week. So if you haven't right. read it, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about how it came to be and what made you want to write it? Yeah, it's called Girls Can Kiss Now. It's a book of personal essays. I feel like it's a it's a good mixture of some, some really silly, you know, smooth brain content, like a list of items that are lesbian <laughs> and um, some really like, you know, personal, uh, emotional stuff that I... Um, 
was happy to get into because I like haven't gotten to do that that much in my in my um like more editorial online writing career. Um, I feel like the the gist of the narrative of the book is that originally when I sold it, I sold it in February 2020 and with the intention to start writing in March 2020. Um, and then the world flipped upside down. And it was kind of originally supposed to be more, I think, lighthearted, um, more like, you know, essays about film and TV, kind of like humorous, analytical, whatever. And then I think like, you know, just like the world changed and I felt he- we all felt heavier. There were things that are on my mind that... Um, I think like tonally just like came out through the book writing process. And so now it's like a little bit, you know, I think it's, I mean, it's, I think it's better for it. It's like a little bit, um, I don't want to say heavier because it is still like overall a lighthearted uh, book of essays, but there's definitely like more memoir, more personal in there. Yeah. Mm. That's great. Um, what was your first pop culture memory you know what's so funny is when we were just talking about Chessie from Parent Trap, I was like, there's also so much other, like, queer signaling in Parent Trap. Mm-hmm. Like, another thing, Riri, maybe you saw this also on Lesbian TikTok, of, like, the renaissance of the tie-dye shirt girl. The, mm-hmm. the one who, like, oh, yeah. rips the like rips the duffel bag out from <laughs> underneath. I don't know. She was, like, she was so Her strong. Power. She was Her so powerful. Power was- and because she had the hat, mm. and she was just so cool. Also, the Marvas, like the Marvas, yeah, the Marvas. That was a whole thing. Clearly, a lesbian couple. <laughs> yeah, it was like they were like Janice from Friends, but gay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I yeah. I so I feel like maybe like as I'm even having these conversations this week and looking back on this, I'm like so much about the Parent Trap was queer to me, and I feel like yeah, like Lindsay Lohan. In the Parent Trap and Tie Dye Shirt Girl. Uh, I, I'm, you know, a 30 year old woman now, and I still look at them, and I'm just like, wow, they were so cool. Like they were so hot. Like that's what I want to be when I grow up. And I'm like these are, I don't know, eight year olds. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. It's like deeply ironic that a movie about tricking a divorced hetero couple into getting back together heterosexually is yeah. is viewed as like queer art. <laughs> um, Riri, I wonder what your first uh, moment of engagement with like queer art was as mm-hmm, a kid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I <laughs> uh, really, I thought this was coming. Um, the best way to describe it is that I didn't, I didn't know I was engaging with it. Mm-hmm. I've like identified as bisexual since I was 17. And then was just going about my business, really like living my life. When I was about 20, I walked into my roommate Bill's room stricken because I went, I loved Xena so much <laughs> that when it went off the air, I wept. And he just went, yes. And I just said, how did I not know? And he <laughs> said, I don't know, baby. I don't know. I don't know. I really like, Jill, the moment of whether or not you want to be Xena or you want to be Gabrielle held by Xena is like a very yes large space in my body. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't know. I I think it has to be that. Even you, like Erin, you speaking about the Power Rangers, I always wanted to be the yellow Power Ranger because I think I thought she was more independent <laughs> than the pink Power Ranger who like made so much of her personality being, it, was, it wasn't Billy's, but like the red Power Ranger's girlfriend. So like to have, like she stood on her own and she was always the person of color, which, you know, obviously. But it like something about that was also had like a queer tent to it. So 
uh, Saturday programming mm-hmm. where I guess you could get a, something out that was a little more gay, like Xena in a a bathtub hiding and a beautiful woman goes underwater and like shares breath with her. So she isn't officially <laughs> kissing her, but giving her oxygen. Like, I, I love mean, to share breath. <laughs> yeah, I like to share breath. Also, weirdly, another big one for me was Dr. Quinn. And here's why. Because <laughs> she took care of everyone. Like, I think there is something of when you're, like, speaking of Chessie, speaking of, like, heterosexual spaces, and there's this one character who, like, so nurtures with beautiful hair. Yes. That you have to co-opt it for yourself as, like, as signaling to you that, like, an attraction to... This mommy trope, which is a huge thing in my life, makes sense. That's so interesting. I have like a whole paragraph in my book just talking about these kinds of characters like Whoopi Goldberg and Sister Act, mm-hmm. Miss Honey and <laughs> Matilda. Like Miss um, Honey, oh God. Break me apart. Truly. Yes. She like sucks now, but like Kirstie Alley in It Takes Two. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it was like all these like kind of like a little bit maternal. Figures who were like, I see you, child who is different. <laughs> they were like women with great hair in like a high-waisted pleated pant <laughs> was like a real space. Which if you look at what we're wearing these days, it's, like it all it all came back. Yeah. So it makes it's sense. It's like the Annie but, Hall sort of yeah. look. Mm-hmm. Alyssa, looking back on like your pop culture upbringing. So like you were watching like, you were watching like Little House on the Prairie. Exactly. You were watching. Let's like <laughs> take me down. Let's just explain no, I, my Alyssa in you, my presence you guys, like this. You guys were talking about Power Rangers. I was like, I think notionally I know what the Power Rangers are. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was about, a, uh, there was a woman who wore pink who fought with, by backflipping and there were aliens and stuff. Right. So like different than Voltron. (laughs) Yes, totally. But you know, a thing that now, and we'll get, we'll get to this in a little bit. There's like queer characters on TV that are overtly queer and their queerness is like written into their characters. Right. But Alyssa, like, you know, when you and I were small children, like we probably connected with queer characters and didn't understand, like they were not, we were not told they were queer. Like who is the first queer character that you remember seeing and being like, this lady's awesome? Well, it's funny because my first real memory was when um, on Golden Girls, when Blanche Devereaux, her her brother was gay. And so it was like, it wasn't the character, obviously Blanche was not gay, but it was my first memory of being like, what is this? What is this they're talking about? And most of my pop culture intake was probably more through music than it was through TV, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Did you ever go to a Lilith Fair? No, I missed Lilith Fair, but I listened to it uh, on MTV and I had the album and everything. I mean, it was like, I could rattle them all. I could rattle off everybody who was there. It's like one of the greatest things that ever happened. I remember really wanting to go to Lilith Fair, like really wanting to go. It was like all my favorite artists and... I felt like if I was going to go to a concert, I would rather be surrounded by women because I feel safer. Safer, 100%. Than I do around men. Like men are, some men are fine, but many are not. Um, But uh, so I I really wanted to go to Lilith Fair and I came to my parents, I think it was like 12 and I had this like sheet and I was like, this is why I want to go to Lilith Fair. And my parents looked at each other like, 
what's going on? <laughs> it was like what a sort moment of where witchcraft like, is going to happen at this Lilith Fair? <laughs> right, right. And I remember being like, why won't they let me go to Lilith Fair? And I think that back then in what? I well, you were 12. probably pretty young. <laughs> I was. It was like 90, 96 or 97. So I would have been yeah. like a young teen. And I was thinking about this episode and I'm like, I, that was a formative memory of like not mm-hmm. being allowed to go to Lilith Fair. And like, man, I'm not going to do that to... My kid can go to Lilith Fair all she wants, man. Like, <laughs> See, and you you were in your early teens when Lilith Fair came out, and I couldn't go because I was in finals at the University of Wisconsin. <laughs> oh, sure, sure, sure. Um, so, Jill, I want to talk a little bit about a piece that you recently wrote for Time. Um, and you would talk about, like, the proliferation of queer characters all over TV now. Um, And just to kind of summarize the piece, you say like you're kind of tired of just seeing these like tokenized queer people just thrown in and you would rather see queer stories. Can you expound upon what that means? Yeah, totally. I feel like it's so crazy to even say something like this because also like, you know, when I was growing up, there was so much nothing that if there was a queer character, it was like completely insane to see them and they were probably like tropey and awful. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it feels like completely insane to say like, I, you know, maybe let's do less. And I don't, I certainly don't mean less queer characters, but I do feel like I've seen this trend lately of it almost feels like a like studio note where they're like, well, we need to throw in a queer person in the show or we'll get in trouble. And then it becomes like, you know, this kind of like half baked, um, like just almost like embarrassing and offensive character that's like, um, you know, like, like the name on everyone's lips uh, is Che Diaz. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I don't, I just feel like um, so many of these characters end up being like queer people who just talk exclusively, like exclusively, exclusively about their queerness, you know, and not just like about their lives or their relationships or dating or their jobs or, you know, whatever. And so I feel like, you know, the reason I wrote the Time article is like, I want to get back to a place of like, just seeing like really good, human, authentic, real um, queer stories and queer characters. Um, To me, that feels like better and more meaningful than like throwing a queer person in every show to fulfill some sort of like studio quota or something. Um, And then, you know, ending up having them be just like quite offensive. (laughs) Riri, what are your thoughts on that? Are there any particular queer characters that you're just like, oh, shut up. This is, this is not, this is not it. Mm, hey, it's Trey Diaz. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I felt scared when you said, <laughs> felt like ugh, fear. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, and I don't even, I don't even want to take shots at that because what I think the problem is having been in, of a couple of these rooms at this point is that every time there's like a new group that someone has decided they're finally going to acknowledge <laughs> the folk often straight white guys who are in charge of it of the rooms are like all right how are we going to do this <laughs> it's like approached like you just said as a note as an obligation rather than like a human and so it was Black people and Asian people and Hispanic people and gay people and, well, bisexual people. They don't exist, so maybe we'll do that. And now it's trans folk. And this idea that 
and like Jill, you put it so beautifully of this, like they have to be either like only talking queer theory all the time. And this is from someone who took queer theory first semester of college <laughs> or versus like eventually allowing them to have nuance and fault and different, their pain not connected to their queerness, but like what it is to be human. What is it to look at these folk as if they're human? And that's, you know, that's really frustrating. And I feel like it's, we've also been taught to be thankful for what we get, Mm -hmm. which is the most frustrating part of it, right? Like I get hired often. I'm a Black queer person. So I've now like weaponized that in interviews. I'll be like, so I I I understand why I'm here. You want to talk about that? Like, I step forward with it as like an armor mm-hmm. of sorts. But then sometimes I get great responses to like being actually in the room. And sometimes it's more like, well, Ree, we got it. Mm-hmm. We got like the gist of it, you know? But so I'll, it's, you, I don't know. You want to go for authenticity. You want to fight back for like, you should just be grateful for what you have and try to also look at characters that have come and go that you now, we now look at with a, a lot of side eye, but recognizing how much of a fight it probably was to get them on in the first place. Mm-hmm. So now that we have all of the, because there were so there were so fewer shows, but now that there's so many options, you don't have that excuse anymore, mm-hmm. and you have so many people out here like really like hustling to get into these rooms and to give you that authentic experience. We just need some white guys to listen. Mm-hmm. Are they to be unthroned and so that we all rule the world? Which is my plan. <laughs> I think that that's a great idea. Um, I have a tattoo of a deer head between my shoulder blades that represent people I've seen it have been like, oh, that's beautiful. And it's like, no, it represents me killing the man in charge, like and <laughs> wearing his head. Um, but uh, but like, here's something that you and I have talked about, Riri, and that's like the pressure that comes from being the only one of something in a room. Like, I think maybe 10 years ago, there was a lot of people who were the only woman, Alyssa, I'm sure you were looked to sometimes as like, Alyssa, you're a woman. Yeah. Oh, like, tell, are you kidding? Tell me, <laughs> tell me how the women think. And, you know, just having one, and, and I think part of it is because the people who run things are willing to make just like the least amount of room possible. Like, what is the least amount of space we can give in our writer's room for a person who can, like, offer a new perspective? And then we'll put the maximum amount of pressure on that person to represent the entirety of possibilities of that perspective. Um, Jill, Jill, you're nodding. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, for the Time article, I talked to Nori Reed, who is a hilarious and really thoughtful comedian. And, you know, like, we— like Nori said this in in an email to me that like, you know, like I don't blame the, uh, you know, the person who like got hired to basically like be the like token voice here because it's like they're under so much pressure from, you know, the higher ups who are mostly still like white, cis, straight men that like, you know, it's like, you know, with Che Diaz or with any of the like characters that I feel like have come out that feel kind of like, you know, like flimsy, it's like I, you can't you can't blame the like queer people that are writing these. Like obviously, right. the queer people have the ex- authentic experiences and like are we're definitely like in the room fighting for like, hey guys, like what if they didn't say you know like woke moment or whatever? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, like what if we just like talked about you know their life? Um, so yeah, so it's like you know it's also like challenging to talk about. I think because 
um, I don't want it to come across like I'm like placing blame on the like queer people who are being tasked with doing these impossible things, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's totally fair. Um, but I also think that like people will make bad faith arguments that that's what you're doing. But those people are, totally. <laughs> but those people are not, they're unserious. Like they're people who don't want to make space in the first place, I feel. Yeah. Well, I think that's the huge part of it. It's like this, the people who are, are in charge of what finally makes it on the page or what gets on air and by air, I don't know, the internet. <laughs> on are, stream. There is, yeah, there is this like bitter judge, judgment that folk with different identities deign to exist. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're reading off of it. It's not, the joke isn't from them, it's on them. Yeah. And that's what's so agitating about, like, we fi you finally get trans characters and non-binary characters showing up in spaces that aren't exclusively theirs and exclusively in their corner of the internet. And they feel more caricature, mm -hmm. which is in stark contrast to the characters you've actually thought of, you've, like, allowed to have a little bit more nuance or, like, exist with a, a little bit more grace. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what folk are, or especially queer folk on the internet and, and gay Twitter are responding to. Mm -hmm. And because we can't help ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, Twitter's there. What are you supposed to do? Not tweet? What are you supposed to do? Not go yeah, on Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. Um, Alyssa, what are some things uh, from, like, your upbringing or from pop culture past that you look back on now and you're like, that did not age well in terms of homophobia, in terms of queer phobia? Like, oh, God, shit. <laughs> I mean, here's the problem is that, like, I feel like by the time I was old enough, I had, like, I think I really wasn't exposed to that much when I was young, that I have, like, these very, like, I look back and I'm like, oh, my God, that was terrible. It's like, I mean, yeah, I watched All in the Family growing up, but I felt, you know, my parents, I may have been three or four years old, but my parents were always like, and here's the lesson, because we didn't believe in <laughs> cartoons necessarily. I think that for me, I identified with people and picked out people who I loved that were like me, and I think that I felt different. Do you know what I mean? Like, I wasn't ever mm -hmm. feminine. I've never been a feminine person, so I gravitated towards what were then called, you know, tomboys. But um, I think either I have eliminated all problematic things from my foundational years or I just don't, I just didn't realize what was in front of me at the time. You know, what's interesting about like queer characters or queer quoted or like tomboys or whatever. Right. Um, Riri, you brought this up earlier in the conversation um, that, that you liked the Yellow Ranger because she wasn't so much focused on boys. And I think one thing that queer characters have to, to offer the queer characters are not necessarily entirely focused on like being boy crazy. Like I really loved having female characters that related to each other about things that weren't right. little boys. Like Nancy you know? Drew. Exactly. She just wanted to solve the crimes with Bess, you know? That was <laughs> Exactly. I want She was about her business. She was about she was about an entrepreneur. Business. <laughs> Nancy Drew would definitely have gotten murdered. I'm just going to say that. Nancy Drew would have gotten murdered in like book two by somebody, <laughs> some idiot. Um, Jill, what are some depictions of queerness from your youth that were played for laughs um, that you consider especially egregiously bad looking back? Yeah, um, I mean, like, 
for me, I feel like there's like like a supercut of like s- things that were small that are actually were actually super meaningful. You know, like to me, like uh, in Bring It On, which I wrote about in my book, like when uh, Courtney, the mean girl, calls Missy, who is like object objectively the coolest character in the entire movie. Well, I, I mean, honestly, there's like four of them that are <laughs> fucking iconic, but like one of she's like painted as the cool person in this movie. And then she, Courtney calls her an Uber dyke. And I felt like, um, and then everyone like laughs at her. She gets like laughed out of the room. She like stomps away through the gym. Um, that like those kinds of moments I felt were like really challenging where it was like, yeah, like a like a gay joke played for laughs. Um, that one specifically, I feel like, was set up in such a weird way where it's like they make you, it's like they set me up, a like young girl watching Bring It On, to be like, oh whoa, like here comes like Eliza Dushku, like she's fucking cool. She's got a wallet chain and a tattoo <laughs> <laughs> and eyeliner. Um, and so the, and, and so I was like primed to be like, oh, fuck yeah. Oh yeah. And then they call her a dyke. And then it was like, I'm like, now I can't trust my instincts. I'm like, wait, but I thought she was cool now, but now she's bad. Okay. No, don't, I don't want to be like her. Um, you know, like those kinds of things. Um, even like, um, a more recent example that always comes to mind is like in Bridesmaids, uh, when mm-hmm. Chris and Wake goes like lesbian, um, like those kinds of things, I feel like really got me when I was younger because uh, just like the insinuation that like if two women were at all intimate, uh, even in conversation, that they were like lesbians, which is bad, you know? Um, And that made me really like aware of like not building intimate relationships with other women because I didn't want people to like yell lesbian about me. (laughs) But now I feel like in the age of TikTok, in a place like Los Angeles, that would be like a cool thing to happen. Like if so- absolutely <laughs> in like most in like most neighborhoods where there's like fun stuff to do, someone yelling that it would be like, oh, all right, thank you. I must be wearing yeah. a very smart pants suit today. <laughs> My blazer looks very good today. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, okay, well, we are running out of time for this conversation. Jill, always a pleasure to have you here. Uh, we're going to ask you to stick around for I Feel Petty, but first we're going to take a break. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. And welcome back almost to the end of the show, but not quite. We are going to talk about what we're feeling petty about this week. Riri, why don't you start us off? Okay. I'm going to start a bit called pre-petty. Okay. <laughs> like, I assume this is coming, and so I want to be on the on the front edge. Cutting edge? Front page of being petty about it. So 
Um, Florida continuing to be the state that should be cut off. Uh, <laughs> their Senate passed the Don't Say Gay Bill, uh, which, you know, is trying to persecute children who are just trying to live their lives and be seen. And so in an effort to get more visibility of the protests and, and just people standing up for what's right down there, there's been a hashtag going on on Twitter of We Say Gay as a sort of response to what's going on there. Which, you know what, I completely understand trying to get resources into one place and folk wanting to see what's going on. That makes a lot of sense. Yesterday, Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker, uh, posted in response to the We Say Gay hashtag, gay, 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 gay. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Oh, it hit. It hit hard. Because I see what might happen here. And I, I see an imagine we are the world sort of bullshit video that could happen. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, please don't. Please don't. No one wants to see you from your tea garden <laughs> say, gay. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not going to do, it's not going to give what you think it's giving. And we already spoke about like celebrities who feeling too free to speak on what's going on politically and and but and not making the choice not to. Mm-hmm. Maybe we, I don't know if we've learned since spring 2020 or June 2020 or the summer of 2020, but the performative allyship or, you know, protests just aren't hitting the way or not giving you the pass like it used to. So, if anyone's PR team is out there listening while on their Peloton, stop them. Stop, don't let them do it it's not going to turn out well. Oh, man. Luke, I am your father. Dad, I'm gay. (laughs) Dad, I'm gay. (laughs) They should put that in Star Wars. I think that would mean something more than Luke Skyward tweeting Or like the opening scroll of Star Wars. It's just like gay, gay, (laughs) gay. (laughs) Well, yeah, Disney seems so, so excited to do something about it. They should just replace that and really do it up. (laughs) Alyssa, what are you feeling petty about this week? You guys, how on earth are there pajamas made that require dry cleaning? (laughs) Like, I love pajamas. And you know what? I have really run through my gap uh, bottoms. And I was like, you know what? It's time to invest in some proper PJ sets because I love them. And it was like my birthday. And so I'm like, I'm going to do it. And it didn't occur to me to check that for some reason, 100% cotton pajamas require dry cleaning. So one, why is that? Also, they weren't like $500. They were just like normal pajamas. So anyway, uh, it is my custom to not buy things that will require more to maintain than it was to purchase in the first place. So the cotton PJs are going to go gentle, gentle night into the washing machine night. But I just don't understand. It should be like a blinking beacon on pajamas if you're buying them. And it's like, oh, you're going to dry clean these after you have perimenopausal sweats in them one night. Like if I can't, like if I can't wash them, I probably shouldn't have night sweats in them either. (laughs) Right. Like I got a cat bed that's like dry clean this cat bed. And I was like, no. Like that doesn't work. (laughs) No, I'm throwing it away when it gets dirty. That's what's happening to this cat bed. No, not dry. Let me tell you, I've gotten very acquainted in just the last few weeks with, um, for anyone listening, it's very helpful. You take a pillowcase, 
You put your dry clean, either washable silk or cotton pajamas in the thing, in the pillowcase, tie it off. Little wool light, gentle cycle. So far, so good. That is a great household tip. That is a a really great (laughs) household tip. I really appreciate that. Um, Okay. Uh, This is like so stupid, but I have to do this every week. And so I'm really reaching. But um, here's what I feel petty about. I think if you own a grocery store or if you are in charge of stocking a grocery store, you should be familiar with cooking and what people might want. You know, like there's a huge grocery store in my neighborhood, a giant Vons, and it's deceptively big. Like you go in and it's like, whoa, there's like too many aisles. But the thing is, the rice aisle is pathetic. I think you can tell a lot about a grocery store's quality by the rice aisle. There's no Israeli-style couscous. There's no regular couscous. There's only like, there's like 10 kinds of jasmine rice and like no black rice, no wild rice. It's like, I feel like if you don't know your rices and you don't know how, like what a person who cooks might want in their pantry, then you should outsource the stocking of your grocery store to a person who does know. Also, I live in a neighborhood that is, pretty diverse. And a lot of the people who live in this neighborhood come from cultures that cook with rice a lot. There's a lot of Filipino people in the neighborhood, a lot of Mexican people in the neighborhood, South American people in the neighborhood. You got to know your rice if you're going to have a grocery store here. That's that's what, I, I that's mean, what I'm saying. Erin, I'd like to send a shout out to my little Hannaford over by Bell's Pond because it's the tiniest grocery store ever. And we do have all aforementioned rices. So proud. That's great. You need you get, get your rice act together, Vaughn. So that's, that's what I'm talking about this week. Uh, Jill, what are you feeling petty about? Um, mine is also like quite dumb and I think, you know, revolves around cooking, actually. I feel, lately I feel so pressed about cooking on a weeknight. I think like cooking on the weekend, like beautiful, feels like an event, feels nourishing, it's healing, can be done with family, with friends, a beautiful, a beautiful moment to be had, like a Sunday evening cooking moment. Cooking for yourself or yourself and your partner on a weeknight can't be done. And I think it should be, it should be illegal. I don't know. It's like I, to to come off of a work day, um, and it's like in, especially during like 2020, when I was feeling like, you know, when I was like truly losing my mind, I mean, we were all losing our minds. Like, I was like, no, this is good. At the end of the day, you like, you wind down, like chopping the onions. It, it's going to heal me doing something with my hands, doing something physical. But like now I just feel I, I, I can't, I can't do it. And, it. and it hurts my feelings when I have to um, begin the process of chopping onions or crushing garlic or whatever it is at like 7 p.m. on Tuesday. That's not for me. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I had a conversation with my parents about this not that long ago. I was like, you know what I made the other night for dinner? And they were like, what? And I'm like, hot dogs. And my dad's (laughs) like, and my dad's like, and I go, so many fucking pots and pans. I'm like a pan for the hot dogs, one for the beans, some for the French fries. It's like, that's the thing about cooking. The cooking part may be soothing, the dishes, not soothing, not remotely. Not yeah. soothing at all. Not soothing at all. We um, So Juniper goes to bed. My baby goes to bed between 6 and 6.30 because she's a baby, mm-hmm. which means we don't start cooking until she's down. But also, like, we can't make too much noise in the kitchen because after she's down, if we wake her up, we have to start the whole process over again. So it's like, 
Yeah, I feel I feel paralyzed by like the prospect of cooking at this point. And it, it's yeah. also like we we don't even really eat until like nine, and we have dishes. Yeah. I think the the cleaning is really actually if I can like boil it down it's like the pans yes. you know like like I, there I, I could maybe like eke out some like healing chopping of vegetables but to to then afterwards be tasked with pans mm-hmm. is no more pants. <laughs> I feel like the sh- the sheet pan meal is is really yeah. great for that because then you just have the sheet pan like yeah. you're you not just bunch up the foil. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> You just bunch up the foil. By the way, have you done the foil in the dishwasher trick? No, what's no, that? No, what's that? Oh my God, I learned about it on cleaning TikTok, which I am also on, um, where you just take some aluminum foil and you bo- you make a ball, like a loose ball, and you throw it in your dishwasher before you run a cycle. And there's some sort of chemistry that happens and your dishes get cleaner. I swear to what? God. Really? I swear to God. Yes. Well, you know what? my science lesson. <laughs> and here's what I was going to say for some baking invest in those silicone mats. Those oh, yeah. keep, it's like the scrubbing. It's like, that's the thing. Cause like, you know, then you put the pans in and you're like, I'm so tired. I'm going to let them sit overnight. But then the water gets cold and that shit's just congealed again. So it doesn't oh, matter. Awful. Yes. I need to get on cleaning TikTok and stop like rotting my brain on lesbian TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag clean talk. There's a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff. It'll show the things that people do with baking soda. I, I was going to say seltzer, lemon, vinegar, baking soda are the foundational elements of clean, clean talk. Yes, it's it's really incredible. Now I have like a gallon of white vinegar and like a giant thing of baking soda under my sink. And I use it to like, you know, disinfect my pipes from soap yeah, stuff. Sure. It's, it's, which I didn't realize that I was supposed to be doing, but now I'm doing it because of Clean Talk. Um, this was a great show. Jill, thank you so much yeah. for stopping by. And uh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And everybody should read your book. It's, it's so good. It's so, it's so good. And also, like, can I just say, I love a great essay collection because you can read it before bed and you're not like, where am yeah. I in the plot? Right. You can just read when you have time, put it down, pick it up again. It's it's great stuff. Uh, thank you to yeah. Riri for stopping by. Uh, Alyssa, thank you as always for being my ride or die. Thanks to Aijan Poo for stopping by and chatting with me and all of the work that she does. Um, our listeners can get in touch, hysteria at crooked.com if they, they want to send us emails, but warning, if the emails are crappy, mean emails, we share them widely and (laughs) uh, are unkind in our fun making of them. Um, But if you like what you've heard, you can leave a review on iTunes or, you know, wherever you're listening to this and tell your friends. And there will be more hysteria for you next week. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis are the sound engineers, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Thank you to our digital team, Nar Melkonian, Mia Kalman, Milo Kim, and Matt DeGroote. 